You're listening to episode 10 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On today's podcast, Todd reviews The Last Jedi, while I review the Netflix documentary Jim and Andy. We give an update on the upcoming Oscars race. We also talk about the most irreplaceable roles of Matt Damon's career in The War of Matt Damon. And our power rankings all look at the top franchises in movie history. All this and more on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no, go for launch. There is a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. We are go for launch. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast, episode 10. We have made it to episode 10, and we still think it's a good idea to keep going. We are joined today by one less member of the tripod than we are used to having. Uh, Zach Saltz was busy tonight, so once again I am Terry Plucknett, and I'm joined by my brother Todd Plucknett. How's it going, Todd? Uh, it's going okay, uh, but we were kind of connected with Zach, considering our Cornhuskers just lost by one point on a heartbreaker in a basketball game to Kansas. Uh, very bad Kansas team. Very bad call by Zach that this is going to be a great team. But uh, we'll hang in there. Tim Miles might actually retain his job. He might. He might. And there would have been no living with you if Kansas lost to the Huskies and the Huskers in a two-week period. Yeah, that would have been a pretty much ideal situation for me and uh, absolute devastation, rock bottom for uh, rock chalk. So, uh... Maybe that is the one reason Zach isn't with us today. He just didn't want to hear your crap. He's probably still mourning over almost losing to Nebraska for the first time in, like, I don't know, what, 15 years at least? It's like Nebraska football almost losing to Kansas. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, how we uh, could never beat Life Christian in uh, basketball, but we always beat them in football, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh. All right, thank you so much once again for listening. If you're listening to us, make sure you rate and review us on iTunes so we can be heard by more people. Also find us on almostsideways.com. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Check out Adam's Almost Sideways YouTube channel. Uh, He's talking all things Star Wars this month. He's got a lot of great content. But right now, we are going to get set... For our movie reviews. I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances. I did not really like this film at all. Movie reviews. So today for movie reviews, we have different films that we will be reviewing because inexplicably I am one of the few people in the world that has not seen The Last Jedi. This being Saturday night the 16th. It came out yesterday, and I still haven't seen it. What's up with that? Inexcusable. I know, I know, inexcusable. So, Todd, you're going to tell us about The Last Jedi. Please, no spoilers, because I want to see it. (laughs) I will do my best. Okay, all right. So go ahead and tell us about The Last Jedi and what you thought. Okay, The Last Jedi uh, was directed by Ryan Johnson, who most recently directed Looper, which is uh, one of my favorite 
sci-fi movies, time travel movies, like, ever. Uh, the movie picks up right where The Force Awakens left off, and Rey has found Luke Skywalker and is attempting to get him to join her and the Resistance in taking down the First Order, which is led by the evil General Snoke, and the conflicted villain with Jedi bloodlines, Kylo Ren. Um... It opens with a spectacular battle scene. Oscar Isaac's Poe actually is given the room to do things that makes him a realistic replacement for uh, Han Solo. He has a temper and his instincts like drive him to do things, and his decision-making is uh, questionable, which is much to his superior's dismay. Uh, Carrie Fisher returns as General Leia, and she looks really tired and old, which is really sad to see at... Uh, you keep thinking they're going to find a way to write her off, but the, the movie is so great because it doesn't actually play to convention. Uh, it's really unpredictable, and it never does exactly what, you're, what you think it's going to do when it absolutely leads up to that moment. Uh, Mark, Mark Hamill gives his best performance ever. Uh, he is able to emote like so much with his face, which is a serious upgrade from what he was able to do early in his career. Daisy Ridley is really good, although she does look like she really has aged a lot in two years and like gained like 20 pounds which is kind of distracting at times um john boyega is fine as finn I, I i just don't think that like the filmmakers really know what to do with him he goes on this like sort of pointless mid uh mission mid movie and it i don't really know why but it was like something for him to do and but it does bring a a really interesting new character <coughs> rose into the uh into the fold, and, uh, and Benicio Del Toro's character as well, who looked like he walked out of a completely different genre. Uh, but, it, I mean, it was entertaining still. The MV MVP of the movie absolutely is, shockingly, Laura Dern. Like, I, I wasn't even really aware that she was in the movie, but she shows up looking like Julianne Moore in The Hunger Games, and she is absolutely the badass of the galaxy, and she is absolutely awesome and worthy of awards consideration, in my opinion. Like, for me, Ryan Johnson is kind of a genius. He, he like, you could tell he's a really, a true fan of the series, but similarly to, like, Sam Mendes when he directed Skyfall, like, he wants to make uh, the series his own and, like, take it in a different direction. He absolutely does that. There, there's some, like, deep dive, like, Easter eggs in the, in the movie for fans of the series, but most of it's not really in the way that you would expect it to be, and... There are a lot of clear parallels to Empire Strikes Back, but it also isn't at the same time, which is really this, like, sort of weird sleight of hand that he has, which is really interesting, and I don't really think it would be with any other writer. Uh, he has a lot of, like, really good ideas and, like, things that I've always been curious about with the Star Wars universe, universe and... Uh, uh, and he, like, explores those things, and, like, there's one scene in particular that is as breathtaking as anything you'll see this year, and it's in complete dead silence, and, uh, like, it'll have anybody glued to the screen, and in just complete awe. And, like, he uses colors in a way that would remind you of maybe Mad Max Fury Road or Blade Runner 2049. I mean, it's definitely a Star Wars movie, but it doesn't really look like it necessarily. It's, it's really something pretty special, and, uh, one thing I was always really nervous about when when Disney took over the series was that it was going to be too safe and tame, but it, this isn't that at all. Like the themes are really dark and the movie's really satisfying. 
and it's bizarrely straightforward and sort of easy to, di to digest, which there isn't really any like crazy Star Wars jargon or conversations that are hard to comprehend, It's but it's still a really brilliant screenplay. And it's kind of sad that you're not able to see uh, Johnson continue on with the series, but he does have his new uh, standalone trilogy that he's working on. Uh, I, and I just think that Johnson is absolutely the best director they're ever going to get to work on Star Wars. Like, Abrams was fine in his directing, it was safe and it was nostalgic, and I'm sure Ron Howard is going to make it fine. But, like, Johnson is a, a director at the top of his game. And, like, we're going to look back on this, and he's going to be a way better director than Irvin Kirshner ever was directing Empire Strikes Back. And um, the only real problem with the movie is that I feel like it might be a little overstuffed. Like, it's two and a half hours, but it feels short. Like, there's, it feels rushed. There's so much stuff that's packed into this movie. And uh, the ending is, like, stunning how abrupt it is. And... Uh, it's just a reflection of how many ideas Johnson had and how he tried to like make this all into one movie, and it was so awesome. Anyway, it's it's kind of like I don't know. It it sort of is like this sort of movie miracle after after what Force Awakens did to make it so similar to New Hope. This movie did everything to make it not Empire Strikes Back, but also <laughs> nostalgic at the same time. Uh, and it, it's exhilarating, and after Rogue One was such a disappointment for me, like, this has me excited again, and I cannot wait to see it again and again. Uh, I give it three and a half stars, and I'm almost a little sad that I don't make it four. I am going to pretend I didn't hear anything of what you just said, and I'm going to go into it fresh. Even though, you did fine. You did fine. You didn't give anything away. Were, were you just not listening? <laughs> I, I, I was That's trying probably... to listen as little as possible. <laughs> okay. Well, I respect that. <laughs> you loved it. That's all I need to know. And Adam Three and hated half stars. it? Is that what I hear? Adam said, Adam looked me in the eye and he said, I kind of hated it. And I was shocked. I was like... <laughs> I was like, that's good. You disagree with me. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. Well, and you saw it with a big group, and you said that there were very polarizing opinions about the film in the group that you saw it with. Yeah, the, the people I was sitting next to on my right uh, weren't really fans of the movie, but they're like huge fans of the series. People on my left were loving it the whole time. So it's uh, dividing opinions, uh, and you can see that by the internet rankings of the movie too. It's people have it as the maybe second best movie in the trilogy or in the entire franchise, and some people don't like it at all, and they would consider it down with the uh, original couple prequels. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to hear what. Uh, what you and Zach have to think about it. I'm sure that we'll get uh, several videos from Adam on YouTube. See, like, his uh, spoiler reviews and stuff. But, uh, I don't know. I I was absolutely thrilled. There was everything I wanted to see from this movie. Well, good, good. I'm sure on the next podcast, I will be giving my report from The Last Jedi. Uh, Zach might have his report on it as well. Yeah, because if you Maybe. haven't seen it by the time you come and been to town, then uh, we're going to go see it. Perfect. Because I'll happily Perfect. do it again. <laughs>
I have a feeling Zach might love this one simply because some people hate it already. This might be the one time he just is like, uh, eh, two and a half stars or three stars. Somewhere in between. Well, but, but see, three billboards he hated because everybody loved it. So True. he's going to love Last Jedi because the trendy thing is to hate it. He might just go with, with whatever Barnelli thinks or, you know, mm. Ebert. Ebert isn't his his uh, fallback, so Barnelli. I don't, I don't actually know what he thought. We'll have to find that before he tells us what he thinks so we can call him probably out won't on listen it. to this <laughs> yeah zach never <laughs> listens to us he just talks on it and zach if you're listening you're full of it <laughs> rock chalk <laughs> all right so that's three and a half stars on last jedi from you yeah i'm kind of sad i didn't give it four but uh like i said the finn plot line not exactly a fan of and uh that was a little bit too much for me to get not give it the highest rating you, you could almost say the finn is thin so th he's thin finn he's <laughs> all right so since i have not seen the last jedi i'm going to be talking about a different movie and it's a movie that has been released recently on netflix uh almost a month ago now and it is a documentary entitled Jim and Andy. And it is a story of the making of Man on the Moon. This uh, film made back in... Oh, when was it? 1999. 1999. So Man on the Moon was made in 1999 by Milos Forman. And this is a film kind of about the making of it. It's a retrospective piece in some ways as Jim Carrey now looks back on that time. The full title of the film is Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. Which, if you understand Andy Kaufman at all, or if you've seen Man on the Moon, you understand that that is the perfect title for such a film. So the majority of this film is Jim Carrey now, talking about the making of Man on the Moon with behind-the-scenes footage that nobody's ever seen before playing of what happened on the set of Man on the Moon. And I gotta say, this film was fascinating because I thought it was the... I thought Man on the Moon was a fascinating film because I thought Andy Kaufman was a very fascinating person, a fascinating character where the reality of who he was and who his character or characters were was very blurred. And in seeing Jim and Andy, you realize that not only were Andy Kaufman and his characters blurred, but Jim Carrey and Andy Kaufman became blurred throughout the making of this movie. Jim Carrey embodied Andy Kaufman in a way that was surreal in some ways. Uh, throughout all the behind-the-scenes footage, you find out that Jim Carrey refused to be referred to as Jim. He was Andy Kaufman, or Tony Clifton, depending on what the day was, throughout the entire making of the film. 
Like, they were even showing clips of him picking a fight with Jerry Lawler, the wrestler that he fought in real life, Andy Kaufman fought. And Jim Carrey, as Andy Kaufman, is picking a fight with J Jerry Lawler behind the scenes to the point where Jerry Lawler physically attacked him behind the scenes of the movie before they even got into the ring and fought, make-believe, in the making of the movie of Man on the Moon. It was crazy. Um, so there's a couple things, along with all the cool stuff of seeing the behind-the-scenes footage and seeing how invested Jim Carrey was in this role. Some of the things that's really interesting about it, Jim Carrey has really become kind of a hermit. He's really disappeared from the public eye over the last couple years. And this is one of the few instances we can see what Jim Carrey is up to. And it is the most sober, stoic, and reflective I have ever seen Jim Carrey. He's looking back on not only this film, but his entire career, and why he made the decisions he made, why he is the person he is. And it's fascinating to hear a comedian who is such a larger-than-life character in the public eye talk about why he is that. And I don't think he is that anymore, which is kind of sad. Another thing that's fascinating about this film is the connection between Jim Carrey and Andy Kaufman is so much deeper than the surface shows. Man on the Moon was possibly Jim Carrey's greatest performance of his career. Probably that and The Truman Show. However, the connection that he had with Andy Kaufman, not only on the set of the film, but in just his personal life and how he related to him in every way, shape, or form, was fascinating. The other thing that was really fascinating about this movie is, like I said before, it wasn't just about Man on the Moon, but it was really about Jim Carrey's whole career. And also where Jim Carrey is at now. At one point he says that he feels like his entire life has been like the Truman Show. And fame is like being in the bubble. And now he's out. And he doesn't care what people think of him anymore. And he doesn't care about doing what he feels like will make him famous or will make him popular. He's going to do what feels right to him. And it's such a different Jim Carrey than you're used to seeing. And I know he's gone through a lot of personal turmoil and tragedy over the last couple years. And I think it's really changed him. So that's another really fascinating part of the, about this film. Uh... I will say it was a little long. It's about an hour and a half. It felt like it could have easily just been like an hour television special. But it is fascinating all throughout. I'm giving it a very, very strong three star. Almost a three and a half. But I say if you are a fan of Jim Carrey, if you're a fan of Andy Kaufman, if you're a fan of Man on the Moon, if you're a fan of biopic films, if you're a fan of good acting you need to see this movie because it's ta it's a great actor, a great comedian talking about his craft, how he would create some, this role and how he embodied this man for this entire shoot. 
There, there's, but behind the scenes footage of Andy Kaufman. No, no, sorry, Jim Carrey. <laughs> it's, it's the lines are so blurred throughout it. Jim Carrey going up to Andy Kaufman's real life dad and having a conversation with him. And Jim Carrey talking about how this movie and him embodying Andy Kaufman this much brought closure to his personal family. Because they were able to have a conversation with Andy Kaufman from the grave. It, it's, it's fascinating in how it tells this story. It's fun. But it really is interesting to see really what Jim Carrey is up to now. And how he looks back on this poignant film in his life. And really, if you think about it, Jim Carrey's career, after Man on the Moon, he I think the next year he had The Grinch come out, which was kind of an anomaly. But you look at the rest of his career after Man on the Moon, it changed. He followed that up with The Majestic, and then Eternal Sunshine, and he started to do this different type of film than he had done before, because it was almost like he was done with that act. He was done with the Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Liar Liar, this persona that had been built up around him. And I think Andy Kaufman helped him find himself and the artist he wanted to be moving forward. It's a very deep, fascinating movie, simply because of what you see from Jim Carrey. Definitely see it. Yeah, that, that's a movie I've been wanting to watch, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. I, I think his performance as Andy Kaufman is one of uh, the best performances of 1999, and he should have absolutely been nominated for Best Actor. And I think that you what you were saying about how he's different now is... Uh, you can see that even when he was at the uh, 2016 Golden Globes and he was uh, introducing one of the awards... And he, like, everything just seemed really weird. It was a really uncomfortable laughter that the audience was having. He was talking about how, like, he felt like when he won a Golden Globe that he actually had achieved something. But you could tell that he really didn't believe that, and he was just saying that. It was, like, it. I you could tell that something inside him was not the same that it used to be. Because otherwise, in any other scenario, you would think Jim Carrey would have just been... La like laugh out loud stuff but this is really uncomfortable laughter because he was saying things that were so true and that's not the way he was 20 years ago well and he talks about in the movie how early on his his career his career was defined by finding what the audience wanted and providing it they wanted this goofball they wanted this release and he could provide that and he basically says that he's at a point in his career in his life, that he doesn't care. He doesn't care what other people think of him anymore for the first time in his life. Which makes this the perfect time to go back and look at Man on the Moon because that's what defined Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman was defined by the fact that nobody cared, or he, no, he didn't care what anybody thought of him. He did things where he was the only one in on the joke and since he found it funny, he did it. <laughs> and I think Jim Carrey has kind of reached this point in his life where he's thinking kind of on a similar wavelength.
So, you should go see Man on the Moon. Or and you Man should on see the Jim Moon. and Andy. And Man on the Moon. If you've never seen Man on the Moon, go see it. If you don't know anything about Andy Kaufman, go see Man on the Moon. Because you're basically watching Andy Kaufman. It, they show like side by side clips in in Jim and Andy of what Andy Kaufman did, and then how Jim Carrey did it, and it is insane how how spot on he is. Speaking of that, by the way, in the Disaster Artist, which is just a absolutely terrible movie, by the way, but the best part of it is actually in the post or in the before the credits, they show side by side of. James Franco's uh, reenactment of the room and the room, they show it side by side and it is eerie how spot on he did this shot by shot remake of, of what I've read like 40 minutes of the movie similar kind of thing <laughs> that's amazing it is <laughs> so speaking of the disaster artist, that gives us a good segue into our next topic because the Disaster Artist is playing prominently in a lot of the awards talk going on this year. And we talked a little bit about this on the last podcast, but we're going to talk about it a little more now because some of the other precursors have come out with their nominations. Some of the major precursors. We've got Golden Globe nominations, we've got SAG nominations, we've got Critics' Choice nominations... And all this is helping shape what we can see is a pretty interesting Oscar race. So, Todd, I know you have some thoughts and you have some updated um, updated predictions on what you think is going to happen at the Oscars. So why don't you tell us about some of the more interesting things you've seen in these precursors and how you think it's shaping the Oscar race. Okay, so the first thing that uh, stood out to me... Uh, when the SAG Wars come out, like, that's most, uh, that has the most correlation to what the Oscars actually, uh, look like in terms of acting awards, and usually if a movie has a SAG a nomination, a Golden Globe, and a Critic's Choice, it's got a really good shot, and then the, the BAFTAs don't come out for another, like, three weeks, so that would be the last thing that would make it almost a for sure lock but there are still some examples like Tilda Swinton in uh, uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin or something like that that would have all those but they wouldn't miss out on the Oscar nomination but it is super rare So, but as of right now the, the, the actors that are still in it that have nominations for all three that just came out, the Golden Globes, the SAG and the Critics' Choice for Best Actor we're looking at Timothy Chalamet for uh, Call Me By Your Name uh, James Franco for The Disaster Artist, which, despite how much I hate the movie, he is absolutely spectacular. He absolutely deserves a nomination. Daniel Kaluuya, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, for Get Out, which is kind of the, the the outlier in this group, because you don't think... Like, he got nominated, and Daniel Day-Lewis did not for the SAG, which is really interesting, but I feel like Kaluuya is... He was born in West London. I like he's absolutely going to get a BAFTA nomination too. So he's he's going to be an Oscar nominee. Uh, Gary Oldman was the other one that got nominated in all three. 
So out of the other ones, I think I think Daniel Day-Lewis is still going to get nominated once more people see it. I assume that the screeners didn't get out in time to go to the to the SAGs, so he probably is going to be the fifth nominee for Best Actor. And when you're looking at Best Actress, there are another four. Uh, Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water was nominated in all three. Frances McDormand was nominated in all three for Three Billboards Outside Evan, Missouri. Margot Robbie in I, Tanya was nominated, and... Sir Ronan in Lady Bird. And I think it's pretty clear that uh, Meryl Streep is going to get nominated because she is Meryl Streep. And The Post actually got shut out at SAG, which is really bizarre. So there's got to be some reason, because like, it's a Spielberg movie, and it's got Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and Bob Odenkirk and like this m- huge cast. There's, like, there's no way that that actually wasn't... Yeah, how does The Post not get nominated for Best I, Cast? Yeah. I have no idea, and that's that's why I think maybe it was maybe it was an issue with the screeners or something. I I really don't know. But the other nominee at the SAGs was uh, Judy Dench and Victoria and Abdul, where she's playing Queen Victoria, which is obviously a possibility because she is Dame Judy Dench. But uh, and she was nominated for Best Actress in a Comedy at the Golden Globes as well, so she could be another nominee. But I'm yeah. uh, I'm still I would still predict the fifth place would be uh, Meryl Streep in in with, with the other four. So you think the Oscars is going to nominate Meryl Streep over Judy Dench in that spot? I would imagine so. Like well, at least with the criteria that I'm looking at right now, like it's still possible that audiences really don't respond to I Tonya, which is totally possible. So I I don't know I. Margot Robbie is is sort of like I, I really don't know at this point but if she's nominated at by BAFTA then it's obvious that everybody loved it and she'll get nominated so you're talking about these three the Critics Choice the Golden Globe and the SAG as pretty good predictors what would you put on like a percentage of actors who get nominated in all three of these going on and getting the Oscar nomination I mean, I would say at least, I would say at least like sixty to seventy percent. It's, I mean, it wouldn't be smart to bet against it, and especially if those they end up getting nominated at the Baftas as well, then it's over ninety percent. I mean, because SAG has only been around since nineteen ninety five, and so, but the sam- the sample size is now big enough that it's, I mean, you get a pretty good idea of what, of what those four of ca- what those four award circuits mean to the Oscars. So let's look at actor really quick. You went through it. So you're saying Oldman's a lock. Shalomet's a lock. Kaluuya's a lock. Franco's a lock. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty much a lock, yeah. So we have one spot left for either Daniel Day-Lewis, Denzel Washington. Who else is in this mix? Uh, the other ones would be, I mean, Tom Hanks for The Post and Jake Gyllenhaal for Stronger. But, I mean, l- like I said earlier, I, I think, uh, I think Daniel Lewis is still, I mean, he'd be in the driver's seat. I mean, if it really is his last movie, which, I mean, he says it is, so, I mean, why not? Let's believe him. Uh, I think... So you're saying it's a six-man race? No, I think... You can never count out Denzel. True. Uh, I don't know. I mean, 
but he, he got left out of the Critics' Choice, and the Critics' Choice nominated seven actors. So, I mean... It, yeah? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis also... I mean, he, he resides in, like, Britain, right? I mean, I think he'll definitely get a BAFTA nomination. Yeah, that's true. I, th- I think he'll... I think he'll be the fifth. Alright, now let's look at Actress. So you're saying Sally Hawkins is a lock. Yeah. Frances McDormand's Absolutely. a lock. Saoirse Ronan's yes. a lock. By the way, I figured out how to say her name. It's like one of the great mysteries of Hollywood <laughs> right now. How do you say her name? So she hosted Saturday Night Live a couple weeks ago. And in her opening monologue, she said it's Saoirse like inertia. <laughs> so there you go. It's Saoirse Ronan. All right. All right. So Hawkins is a lock. McDormand's a lock. Ronan is a lock. Margot Robbie, a lock. I'm not sure an absolute Maybe. lock, but I mean, it's looking really good for her at least. If there's a surprise snub, you think that's the where it's going to be? Yeah. Just because I mean, I don't really trust that movie necessarily. It seems like a really bizarre, really bizarre story. I, I'm not sure. And then you've got Judy Dench or Mel Street. Is this pretty much a six-person race uh-huh. too, or do you have any others that could crash well, the party? I mean, it matters how seriously they take uh, Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut, Molly's Game, which has Jessica Chastain, which she got nominated for Best Actress in a Drama at the Golden Globes. She would be in there in the race as well, and but I was thinking she would get a SAG nomination, but she didn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think uh, Battle of the Sexes was a really bad movie, but Emma Stone is really good in it. She got nominated at the at the Golden Globes. She is would be an outside, and they'd love to follow up yeah, a win I mean, with that, a nomination. There's a pretty decent history of that. There, that'd be a possibility. Other than that, I I really think it's it's down to those those few people. And like like I said, Meryl is going to get nominated, and. Uh, so at that point, the last spot would either be Dench or Margot Robbie, and right now I guess it would go with Robbie because she's got the uh, the more polished resume at this point. Okay, so now let's move on to supporting actor. What do you think of this race? Uh, so right now the actors that got nominated for all three of them were Sam Rockwell and Three Billboards. Willem Dafoe in The Florida Project, who is probably going to win the award. Richard Jenkins in The Shape of Water. And I'm going to include Steve Carell, even though at the Golden Globes he was nominated for Best Actor in a Comedy, and at the Go- at the Critics' Choice he was nominated for Best Actor in a Comedy, which isn't actually one of their major acting categories. But he was nominated by for Supporting Actor at the SAG for the same award. So, I'm going to include him, too, because I don't think anybody's really taking him seriously, and he really is a scene-stealer in that movie, so I... He is a former nominee as well, so I would include him as being one of the major threats. How crazy is it that Christopher Plummer got a Golden Globe nomination for a role he picked up a month before the nominations came It's on. absolutely ridiculous. I, obviously, the Globes had an agenda nominating Michelle Williams, Christopher Plummer, and Ridley Scott, especially for that movie, just for how they handled the, the whole Kevin Spacey situation. I think it's kind of ridiculous. I don't think he has a real shot at getting nominated for the Oscars, but 
this year, who knows? Because especially with the how the SAG Awards played out, like they they might have just been in a really strange mood, and uh, and might carry over until January. Okay, so your other ones you got here. We've got Woody Harrelson for three billboards. We have Army Hammer for Call Me yeah, By Your Name. Yeah, which was an absolute shock. Hammer was nominated for was the Globes. Snubbed by the SAG, considering that that is a type of movie that is always nominated at SAG, and it only it came out on cast, which it also had Michael Stuhlbarg, who was one of the uh, like main guys, get a nomination as well. He got snubbed. The only nomination it got at SAG was Timothy Chalamet. Which is kind of interesting in its own right, because he's so young, and he's now in that stacked Best Actor category with all the legends. And Daniel Kaluuya. <laughs> the legends and Daniel Kaluuya. So, if you were to predict right now what the supporting actor lineup would be at the Oscars, what would it be? I would go Carell, Defoe, Jenkins, Rockwell, and Stuhlbarg. I think that they're, the fact that Army Hammer still doesn't have respect from his own actors is telling, and I think the fifth nomination would go to his co-star, who is also in uh, in The Post as well. Like he, he seems like he's in everything every year, but Michael Stilbarg, I think, would get the fifth nomination for Call Me By Your Name, which would be similar, I guess, probably to last year when... And I think- Michael Shannon got nominated for, or he got nominated over Aaron Taylor Johnson for the same movie. So that would be kind of a surprise you nomination. Stuhlbarg. Yeah, I mean he was nominated at the Critics' Choice, but yeah, he he's got no, he's got no pedigree at this point, and no indication that the actors actually like the movie, which it would definitely be a surprise. But that would be my my prediction. But it would be sort of outside the box. The more safe choice would probably be Woody Harrelson or Army Hammer. Okay. Now, let's move on to what I see is a very strange and completely wide open Best Supporting Actress race. What do you see there? Okay, so uh, to recap the nominations so far, we got uh, Mary J. Blige for Mudbound was nominated by all three, as well as Allison Janney for I, Tonya. Lori Metcalf for Lady Bird and Hong Chow for Downsizing. And which is like the only Oscar buzz Downsizing yeah, is getting at this point. Yeah, I had seen point. her on some list like early in the year saying that people who had read the script said that that was the scene stealing part, so it it actually makes sense that she would actually be getting awards consideration, but the fact that I don't really know who she is makes it uh sort of I don't know. It makes it interesting that she's being singled out by a movie that most critics and audiences don't necessarily even like that much. It's just strange that an unknown like that is the one that's getting the buzz in a movie with Matt Damon and directed by Alexander Payne. Yeah, but I mean, Alexander Payne, I mean, there's always June Squibb, so... (laughs) June Squibb! But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of other contenders in this uh but i was actually uh really surprised that the golden globe snubbed the big sick completely so i i think holly hunter is right there neck and neck with these actresses as well 
But if I were to predict it right now, I'd say Octavia Spencer probably gets nominated for The Shape of Water because it seems like everybody loves her in everything she does. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the movie seems to have hit with all the right people, just uh, not necessarily the SAG didn't... Uh, it didn't connect with SAG for some reason, other than uh, Sally Hawkins' nomination for Best Actress. So, but I, I think she'll she'll be the eventual nomination over and Richard Jenkins. Oh yeah, and Richard Jenkins, true. Which makes it interesting that it didn't get nominated for Best Ensemble Cast. <laughs> so you're saying Octavia Spencer getting? I think she will because I think the Big Sick is a really strange case. It's. A true story starring the people who actually were in the movie, or actually were the inspiration for the movie, and I don't know that it necessarily connected with everybody, but it's a really good movie, and I always thought that Holly Hunter was going to get nominated by SAG, but I, I'm kind of shocked that the Golden Globes didn't go for it, too, because they love comedy so much, and I don't know. If they didn't go for it, then I'm thinking that the Oscars might uh, pass on her as well. They not only didn't go for it, it got shut out at the Globes. How does a film like The Big Sick get shut out at the Globes? True, but I mean, their best actor in a comedy category was was kind of loaded, and I think we both love Ansel Elgort getting nominated for Baby Driver. Absolutely. But other than that, you got Steve Carell, James Franco, Hugh Jackman, and Janet Kaluuya. I mean, Camille Nanjani was great, but he was playing himself. I mean, and I don't know who you're gonna take out in that in that case. I mean, Holly Hunter really is the the the, the shocker in that. Yeah, I mean, I even thought Ray Romano had a chance, but then he's going up against a like a, a like a bunch of Hollywood big shots. So I don't know. I mean, it would is a great year for and it. Also comedies. hurts. Yeah, and it also hurts that the Golden Globes only has one screenplay True. category. I think it's pretty safe to say that the Big Sick is going to get in for best original screenplay. But there's no way it's going to be in the top five screenplays of the year. I don't really agree that it's going to get nominated for Best Original Screenplay when you're talking about Get Out, Three Billboards Outside Ebony, Missouri, The Post, Lady Bird, and The Shape of Water. I think that, and in addition to Paul Thomas Anderson's screenplay, I don't think there's any chance that they nominate Camille Nanjani for Best Original Screenplay. That is an that is an incredible original oh, screenplay that would category. Be a bummer. Okay, so back to the supporting actress. You're saying Janny, Chow, Blige, I'm and I'm not Met saying Chow is a lock. I, I'm saying that she got... Uh, she's gotten all the right uh, nominations so far. I think Octavia Spencer would be fourth, and then okay. the fifth spot would either be Chow or Hunter, probably. Who's the favorite right now? I... I think it's probably Laurie Metcalf, which is, I don't know, I, I, I guess a more traditional thinking would be Allison Janney because she's more established, but Laurie Metcalf, like, it's the mother role in a movie that's really popular, and that is always the kind of thing the Oscars love. And I think that the fact that she's so popular in television as okay. well, that she'll, if she could get the love from SAG then that would could easily carry over to the Oscars. Alright. Let's look at picture now. Because I think this race is shaping up to be really interesting. And you've been looking at some really interesting statistics. 
involving Best Picture with these precursors? Tell me what okay, you think. Okay, well, with uh, the Screen Actors Guild for Best Ensemble Cast, uh, it's been around since 1995, and the first movie to win that award, or to not, or the first year of that award was Bra- Braveheart won Best Picture, and it was not nominated for Best Ensemble Cast. Since then, that is the only time this ever happened. So, you would, if that holds this year, then the Best Picture winner is either going to be Mudbound, which is a Netflix movie, The Big Sick, which we, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not which isn't Best gonna Picture. Happen. They are not going to make a Netflix and the Big movie Sick is not going Best, to Best Picture either. Uh, and we got Three Billboards Outside right. Ebbing, Missouri, which is obviously showing up everywhere, so that's got a good shot. And then you got Get Out, which was a horror comedy directed by John Peel <laughs> that came out in <laughs> February. And you got Lady Bird, directed by Greta Gerwig. And so you would think that of those, one of them would get would be our Best Picture winner. And this comes in, like, those nominees came over the huge cast of The Post and Dunkirk, which were presumed favorites to win Best Picture, as well as acting showcases of, you know, Call Me By Your Name. And uh, obviously Army Hammer was snubbed for that, so it even decreases that movie's chances. So, uh, with that stat in mind, obviously coming off of last year, which La La Land was, like, steamrolling everything going into the Oscars, and but it was not nominated for the SAG Best Ensemble, which was telling... It was a it was a slam dunk best picture winner, and then it didn't get nominated, and then it didn't win best picture. So I'm thinking that it ends up we end up getting like The Shape of Water uh, wins best director, or Dunkirk wins best director, and then one of those three indie movies, Three Billboards, Get Out, or Lady Bird win best picture. Three Billboards would be sort of like No Country for Old Men winning, which I'm not really sure that they're gonna do, and. I don't really know a comparison for Get Out. Maybe Crash or something. Uh, it'd be totally bizarre and groundbreaking for that movie to win. Yeah, there's really no comparison for Get Out. I mean, you say Crash because it came out early on in the year, but that can't win Best Picture, it's right? Getting, I mean, it's got all of the right the right things. I mean, Critics' <laughs> Choice nominated him for Best Director. He got snubbed the Golden Globes, so that that's... Uh, but uh, but then again, I mean, if Three Billboards is is if, is a big threat, then it also got didn't get an editing nomination at the Critics' Choice either. So I mean, they, there's nothing really makes sense this year. But uh, that's why I think that the absolute front runner right now is Lady Bird, which is the indie comedy, which never actually wins. Like Little Miss Sunshine and Juno, at one point or another, were the be- were the Best Picture favorite because they won the Producers Guild and they were won the Screen Actors Guild, and. Uh, they, they they absolutely were going to win Best Picture, and then they ended up not doing it. But this year, I think it actually is a possibility because of everything that's going on in Hollywood and because the movie is actually really good. And even though I only gave it three stars, I think it actually could be the Best Picture winner. And it had, like I think out of everything that we know right now, it has got to be the bona fide frontrunner. It's not going to win Best Director, but if she gets nominated for Best Director, then there's no doubt that it is winning Best Picture. When was the last time... A first-time director had their film win Best Picture. I mean, it's got to be American Beauty, right? Or, no, Crash. I think it's Crash. Was that Haggis' first film? I think so. I don't know. Huh. 
It's been a yeah, while, though. It doesn't happen very often, and there, obviously there's only one female that's directed a Best Picture, and that was Catherine Bigelow. And yet, of the three films, two of the three are first-time directors. Yeah. Which is why I think it's so weird, and... I don't know. I I don't. I just don't feel like Three Billboards feels like Best Picture winning material. It's it's like a, a a lock for several nominations. I just can't see that actually that title being called a Best Picture winner. Like, can you see Morgan Freeman going out and 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 like calling Three Billboards outside Ebbing? There's no way. Three Billboards outside no way Ebbing, Missouri. There's no way that's winning Best Picture. <laughs> I lo- I would totally take it out at like twenty two to one right now. Okay, how has Get Out survived the year? Because it's almost impossible for a film that comes out in February to last through the year and keep the Oscar buzz and still be around at this time of year and getting all the nominations. How did Get Out do it? It's really good. <laughs> Like I, yeah, but we can say that about that a lot of films. February, but I mean, especially this movie because it, it it's so different than what you actually think. Like there's there's definitely uh, like uh, parallels to modern society and stuff like that. Like there's a lot of stuff under the surface, but it's also really well acted, and it's got Catherine Keener in it. <laughs> I mean, well, you need to say everyone no more. loves Catherine Keener. <laughs> I don't know, like. <laughs> there, there's something special about that movie. When you, when you watch it, you just, you just feel like this movie's different. I just find it interesting that we're down to those three, potentially. Yeah. You can't count out Dunkirk, though. But that, that monster cast did not get nominated for the SAG Ensemble, and Get Out did. Yeah. I mean, they're like, <laughs> they're, they're, the SAG had to just be in like. The, the weirdest state of mind. Like, you got an, a, a cast that the people who are uh, are credited, over half of them are Indian, right? Or whatever. No, Pakistani. Yeah, Pakistani. And and then you got... Yeah, and you and got an a Netflix, Netflix movie. movie, which apparently nobody really saw, because I don't actually know anybody else other than me that watched it. But it's getting all sorts of nominations. It isn't, actually. Like, it really is just... Mary J. Blige and and well, this Mary J. Blige <laughs> and this ensemble cast award, but that got nominated over The Post and Dunkirk and Call Me by Your Name. It's bizarre. The Shape of Water. The Shape yes. of Water. Um, these movies that have beginning loaded with nominations and acting categories all throughout award season. But no, they go with The Big Sick and Ray Romano. Yeah. Does the Big Sick have a shot at a I Best Picture does. nomination? It, I think it feels like a Best Picture nominee, but there's no way it's ever going to win. But I, what bizarre is like that actually is probably right, its only nomination. It will be the first time since <laughs> Grand Hotel won Best Picture in the 30s that a movie would be nominated for Best Picture and that have to be its only nomination. But, I mean, wow. if Holly Hunter doesn't get nominated... If it gets Picture... It gets into original screenplay. I feel like all the best movies are original to. screenplays, though. There could easily be seven original screenplay nominations, not or seven original screenplays nominated for this picture. If they like it well enough, if they like it well enough to be True. a best picture nominee, 
it will I mean, be yeah, I guess in it would original need to have screenplay. Five percent first place votes to get nominated for best picture. So I guess that would probably make sense. By the way, one of the coolest things I've seen over the last couple weeks is Kumail Nanjiani's response to getting shut out at the Globes. Oh, I'm sorry, not Kumail's response, but Steven Spielberg's response after he stole Kumail's phone and tweeted on his account. Because <laughs> it was totally Steven Spielberg. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Kumail tweeted as Steven Spielberg saying how great the big sick was. Agreed. It was great. <laughs> okay, well, it's definitely going to be an interesting award season. We're going to be seeing a whole lot of stuff over the next month. As When do the Oscar nominations come out? Uh, the Oscar com- nominations come out January 23rd. A month and a week. And that should be after... All these other award ceremonies have happened, right? Yeah, I mean, the Golden Globes are January 7th, at least, so... And the SAGs are January 21st. So yeah, the uh, nominations will come out after those, but uh, the, I think the ballots close probably, I don't know, a week before that, so... They're not all going to depend on the speeches of the uh, previous award shows, but... Right, but we'll be able to have a better picture because we'll know who the winners are in all those awards ceremonies. Yes, we will. And we will have already gotten sick of some of them telling their random stories the exact same way. Unless it's one of the years where they all are different winners, which would be awesome. (laughs) It could be. All right, moving on from our awards talk. We are going to move into... A conversation we've had a few times on here, and that is looking at the war of a specific actor. War stands for wins above replacement. It's mostly a sports statistic, but we are going to use it to apply to actors. And today we're going to be talking about Matt Damon. I'm Maureen Matt Damon. Yes! Oh, it makes me so happy. So what we're going to be looking for is, (laughs) that's great, we're looking for not necessarily his best performance, but his most irreplaceable performance, because that's what the whole idea of Windsor Above Replacement is all about. Okay, so Todd, why don't you go first? Okay, when I'm looking at Matt Damon, uh, I find him an actor who is marked by subtlety emotion, sense of humor, and his Boston accent, and uh, he's underrated in a lot of (laughs) movies throughout his career. I mean, he's got three acting nominations, one producing, and a win for a screenplay. Uh, I mean, you watch a piece of garbage like Suburbicon, and it just feels like Matt Damon, and you watch Rounders, The Adjustment Bureau, even Eastwood's Hereafter. It feels like Matt Damon, and... Wait, a piece of garbage feels like Matt Damon? (laughs) You, I eat pieces of garbage like you for breakfast. Uh, there really okay, continue. isn't an actor who is his equivalent in these types of movies, and I'm not even actually sure he has a type of movie. Like, he, like movies just mold around him, which isn't really something that I could normally say about an actor. 
like a few roles that I think of, like Goodwill Hunting, he wrote it sort of like himself. I can't really, it's hard to see another actor in it, even though we tried for our recasting segment a couple podcasts ago. It's really hard. The Good Shepherd it is a subtle, yeah. controlled, yet emotional performance that I, it's hard to imagine another person playing. True Grit, with his dry sense of humor, and him, like, flipping up his collar saying, like, I'm a tech stranger. Like, I don't know who does that with a straight face. Matthew McConaughey, that's who does that with Maybe. a straight face. But he, that, That's that got no. a terrible war score. Because he was he being Matthew McConaughey. That's true, that's true. And then I, I also was really statement. tempted to say Euro Trip for this, but... After watching uh, Disaster Artist, and it, it's hard Scotty to not see James know. Franco being able to do it, and with Spring Breakers as well, like James Franco and Matt Damon are the only two that could play that role. So I didn't choose that. I went with The Martian because I really can't picture another actor carrying a movie quite like that. Is it's got humor, it's got drama, and basically it's all him in the movie and. Uh, in ways that are different than Hanks and Castaway and Rockwell and Moon. Uh, it's his charisma and likability that make the movie click. Not necessarily anything else. Not the screenplay, not the direction. It's, it's, it's Matt Damon that makes the movie go. And he's sarcastic. And he's able to have his voice come out even when he's sending a, like a sort of text message to NASA. I mean, if I was thinking of other people I could play it, maybe I could say DiCaprio or... John Cusack or Oscar Isaac, I could see in different ways. I could see play the, the role, but none of them are Matt Damon. I like he makes movies his own just by appearing in them. And either directors have roles that are written for him, or he just is that irreplaceable overall. But The Martian, I think, is the one that I can't actually see another person replacing him like that. Yeah, that's a good one, especially the likability part. Because that character is so likable in everything that he does. Like like you said, I think maybe like young Tom Hanks kinda cast but pre pre castaway Tom Hanks. Like maybe like Forrest Gump Possibly. era Tom Hanks. But yeah, that's I would have loved to see one. Oscar Isaac play that part. But I don't I don't think it would have quite been the same. Yeah, that would have been interesting to see. I think one of the important things that you mentioned is his subtlety of emotion. And how he can emote so much simply with his face and his body. And so thinking that way, I went with one of the few franchises that he has been a part of. And that's Jason Bourne. Because, for a couple reasons. Sure, it's an action movie. But it's also a much higher thinking action movie than you're used to seeing. And because he has that emotional range in there that few people can bring. So he can bring the physicality. He can bring the emotional range. And simply for the fact that they tried to reboot it with another actor. And a pretty good actor in Jeremy Renner. And after doing the Bourne Legacy, they said, you know what? No, we can only do this with Matt Damon. For that alone, top war. Jason Bourne. Yeah, that was... uh definitely one of the ones I considered as well. Like it's it's hard to consider another actor because of those reasons you mentioned and because he pretty much created that part. Like that would have been nothing without Matt Damon. And he, he's done that span throughout the entire stages of his career. He still is Jason Bourne. It's awesome. Yep. 
Cool. All right. So, The Martian, Jason Bourne, top war performances and for trip. Matt Damon. And now we are done. I'm Maureen Matt Damon. Yes! <laughs> we have fun. All right. Enough of this goofiness. It's time now for power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. All right, moving along into power rankings. I won the competition last time. Thank Yay. you very much. And so I got to pick the topic for the first time. And so what I went with, looking at The Last Jedi coming out this week, and yes, I haven't seen it, I decided to go with top movie franchises. And what I defined as a franchise is a universe that has at least three films. You have to have at least three films to qualify. It doesn't have to be a trilogy, but it has to have at least three films. So, it's just me and you competing this time. So we're going to give our top fives, give our honorable mentions, then we're going to see what Adam said and see if we were okay. able to predict it. Yes. Okay. So since I was the champion, I'm going second. Okay. So give your so... number five. When I am a little more analytical looking at this than most people are, so I was looking at every single franchise that I could find and seeing the franchises that I have seen every single movie in the franchise, and I actually gave a thumbs up to all of them. And I only found four. Wow. And one of them was Austin Powers. So that is my number five. I had to include it. Uh, Austin Powers, the British spy, spoof of James Bond, Mike Myers at his most irreverent and iconic and hilarious, playing several different roles. I want a fourth movie so bad, and what the hell is he doing right now? Why is he not making this movie? I Austin yeah, Powers yeah. is my number five, because I actually like all of the movies. That is good enough for me. I'll take that. I'll take it. All right, well, my number five, since Zach was not able to be here, I had to put in a number five that Zach would be proud of. And so my number five is the Up series. The Up series is a series of documentaries that started back in the 60s. Uh, Michael Apted, who is a pretty good director and other things, he has gone to Britain and interviewed a group of people that are all the same age and started when they were seven years old and have interviewed them every seven years throughout their lives. Uh, the last one came out in 2013 or 2012. It was 56 up. So what were all these people looking like when they were 56? So there's been 7 up, 14 up, 21, 28, 35, 42, 49, 56. I'm looking forward to 63 up coming out. And it's so fascinating to watch these films as you see these people grow up. 
you see how their personalities change at different times in their life, see how they stay the same, and really to see how they mature. They're a fascinating group of films to watch. If you've never heard of them and if you've never seen them, you have to see them. They're so much fun and they're so fascinating. The Up series, my number five. That is one that I have not seen, so, uh, but I've obviously heard from you and Zach. Dude, get on that. So I, I will find a way to watch those eventually. My uh, number four, I went with uh, one of the series that has the most, probably most movies in it, and that's James Bond. Uh, what I love about the series is it has a really high floor with the movies. Like, there aren't really any horribly bad movies on. Other than the, like, the unrealistic garbage, like, Moonraker and Die Another Day. I was gonna say, Moonraker, yeah, like, come on. They, they get to the point where they're, like, they're really unrealistic and, and stupid. Like, but that's really rare. But you got movies like Goldfinger, From Russia With Love, Skyfall, The Spy Who Loved Me. Those are, like, as, like, the peak of the series, and... I I love all the the Bond movies essentially except for the the very few exceptions, and uh, even the ridiculous Man with the Golden Gun and The World Is Not Enough and License to Kill are still worth watching because they're all so deep and confusing, and fun. And uh, the recent entries have made me excited again about the series, and uh, they've gotten the best British actors to take part in these movies, and it makes it mandatory movie going for pretty much any fan of movies and especially of bond and his uh and his history so the bond movies are my number four i'm gonna be honest james bond was on my list and then i found out zach wasn't coming and so i took it off and put the I up series on my list have bond on there until i had austin powers and i was like i can't have austin powers on there for sure and then not have the inspiration for it. <laughs> At least be above it. <laughs> so I put it number four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alright, well number four on my list. I'm a sucker for some great superhero films. And so for number four, I went with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The whole thing I'm counting as one franchise. It's really petered out in the last few films. But simply for the scope that it has gone for... And there have been some great films along the way. You go all the way back to Iron Man and Incredible Hulk. I gave three and a half stars to both those at the start of this whole thing. I think the Avengers, the first Avengers film, was one of the better superhero films I've ever seen. But just this idea that they're going to take all of these superheroes, put them into one universe where they all interact with each other, it is something that's never been done before in this way. And there's been some great stuff that's come out of it. There have been very few of these films I've given a thumbs down to. And so for that in itself, the effort it has done, and simply for being so much better than the DC Cinematic Universe, MCU is my number well, four. Well, yeah, it is uh, unquestionably better than... DC, but uh, I, there's still way too many movies that I don't really like in that. I, I, I didn't, I did not include that on this list. But there are some that I do I like. I figured you wouldn't. But they are. I actually <laughs> do don't like more than I do like. But I'm, I'm burnt out on superhero movies, so those are not going to be on my list. Okay, 
my number three is uh, the Toy Story franchise. And uh, for me, it's a perfect franchise that has only gotten more creative and emotional as, after the greatest animated movie of all time started the franchise. And the, for me, the, the toys are just as relatable as humans and as interesting as the humans. And the third chapter actually made you feel for Andy as much as you feel for the toys. And it upped the stakes more than any Pixar movie has ever done emotionally. Uh, it, I've, I'll never get tired of watching the movies. And it's one of the only times that I will ever admit to actually openly crying in a movie was during Toy Story 3. And, uh, I don't know. The second one is just so different. It's I've never seen a story quite like it. And the first one is, like, just... It's, uh... <laughs> It's a perfect. It's a perfect movie. I love the Toy Story movie so much, and they're making a fourth one, which I was nervous about. But when I saw who was involved, I actually am okay with it. I'm okay with it. I hope they don't screw it up. Toy Story is my number three. I completely forgot about Toy Story. That's not okay. Oh, I know. I don't think it would have made my list though. My list is too strong. Anyways, okay, my number three is a franchise I hope it better be on your list. If not, then this whole thing is a fraud. Because number three on my list is the Before series. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight. Before Midnight. (laughs) This series of films made by Richard Linkletter, starring Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke, have been... An incredible set of films in a very similar way to the Up series in that we're checking in on these characters every now and then. So every nine years they've been coming out with a new film where we're checking in on Jesse and Celeste. Celine. And seeing what they're up. Mm, Celine. Jesse and Celine. (laughs) Seeing what they're up to. Seeing how they've changed, how they've matured, how their relationship has gone. And they're absolutely fascinating from start to finish. Some of the best films I've seen over the last 20, 25 years. The Before series, my number three. Interesting you should say that. That is actually my number two. Rick's Before series is uh, movies that I love and I recommend to everybody, including you and including... Uh, Zach, who still has yet to watch them, and Adam, who actually loved them just as much as I did. Uh, they are movies that are different. All three are different in terms of their tone, and they are, but they are all brilliant and they are flawless. And Before Sunrise is nostalgic, and it's really just like an extended conversation, and it's really interesting. And Woody Allen couldn't have written dialogue like that between two characters. Before Sunset is vital and brief. And probably as perfect of a movie as I have ever seen in my life. And the like the most the the most heartbreaking and interesting and lovable ending I've ever seen in a movie. And Before Midnight is the most real and emotional and raw of all the movies. Uh it represents the best that Jelly Delpy could possibly offer, the best that Richard Linklater couldn't offer, and Ethan Hawke, it represents everything that makes him interesting as an actor and as a writer. Uh, Jesse and Celine are characters that I feel like I know, and I'll never forget, and I'll never take them for granted, and 
I'm so happy that I stumbled upon these movies when I did, because I might not have taken to them the same way I did when I did actually uh, get exposed to them. And 2022 cannot come soon enough, and I hope that they actually have another movie come out then, because I will be there first in line guaranteed, because I don't know anyone that loves it as much as I do. But it's only number it two. It is number two. It's hard okay. to, uh, it's hard to uh, top my number one. But, I mean, if anything was going to, it would be, obviously, the lowest grossing franchise of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My number two, I know is not on your list. Because my number two is the Harry Potter series. Um, I was late coming to Harry Potter. It was something where I kind of prided myself... In the fact that I had not, I had not read, I had not seen any of the movies, any of the books, and then about a year before the last film came out, I binge watched the whole series and fell in love with it. Uh, J.K. Rowling created such a rich universe that few have ever been able to do before. I love all the movies. I love all the characters. I'm so excited for the Fantastic Beasts series. And seeing where that takes it, I love the first one. I'm really looking forward to the second one coming out around this time next year. Uh, The good versus evil. All the things that are wrapped up in Harry Potter, I love. It's my number two. Yeah, I actually thought about that franchise, but I didn't actually see the Fantastic Beasts movie, so I didn't uh, include it because I haven't seen the entirety of it. And it actually did have a high percentage of movies that I actually did give it a thumbs up to, but I don't really love any of them except for Goblet of Fire, so I, it did not make my list. Uh, but my Fair number enough. one, which is a movie that, or it's a franchise that I don't think, for me, there was no other choice, and that's The Godfather. Uh, all three movies are in my top 50 of all time it's a franchise that defines what cinema is all about and the corleone family saga is something that just i mean for me cannot be topped and uh the original movie is just movie perfection this the performances the screenplay the mood the tone the direction the score are all just bliss and the second movie somehow follows it up with something so ambitious and satisfying that it actually surpasses it in a lot of ways. And the third one is so different and brutally emotional, despite popular opinion, is actually just as good as the the first two. And once a year, about, I'll take my track through the, through the franchise in a day or two, and there's always something I see that I didn't see the time before, which I can't actually say about any other franchise or any movie in general. And... I selfishly kind of want to know what they're up to 30 years later, as long as Francis Ford Coppola is still alive to uh, write and direct it, but I don't think I'm ever going to see that, And uh, but I'll never complain about the finished product of the franchise of The Godfather. It is the greatest ever. Yeah, The Godfather franchise, it's one that I can respect for being amazing cinema. Very rarely will I sit down and say, I feel like I need to watch Godfather. It. I don't know. It's that's just how I feel about it. I don't know. I. I. I'll. I'll just get the. The itch to watch something like, 
I, it's not necessarily, like, the, the length, it's really expansive, and when you sit through the entire ten hours of the three movies, it really just, I don't know, you just feel so, I, I feel so alive when I watch it, I, I, lo I love watching it, and I do, I really do watch it, like, once a year. And when it's on TV, I have a hard time ever shutting off any part of the original Godfather. Like, every single scene is perfect. I cannot think of one scene that I would be like, oh, I could, I, I could turn the channel. Okay. So my number one is going in a completely different direction. Because I'm going to go with a franchise that has had more influence on the movie industry than almost any other franchise. And that is Star Wars. You gotta go with Star Wars number one. It redefined what a science fiction movie is. It reinvented the category. There's like pre-Star Wars and post-Star Wars in movie making of this type. And yes, I haven't seen The Last Jedi. However, the way they're able to tell these stories... Um, it, I, I had a little piece in Adam's YouTube star wars month and the way i describe them is timeless even though they take place in a galaxy far far away a long time ago they have timeless themes they have uh, they have these things that we all can relate to on so many different levels it makes it such a perfect series in so many ways star wars has to be my number one yeah i uh I kind of had a little funky rule that, like, I actually, of the nine movies in the franchise, I actually didn't like three of them, and that's a big percentage of movies in a franchise that I didn't like, so I kind of did not put that in my top five just because of that, because it doesn't, like, for me, that means that it isn't Star Wars that makes it great, it is the individual achievements that make them, them great. New Hope is close to perfect. Empire Strikes Back is as as good as it can get. Last Jedi, Revenge of the Sith, those are those are phenomenal individual movies. But then you get Rogue One, I don't like, and I don't like Attack of the Clones, and Phantom Menace is ridiculous. I don't know. I couldn't quite put it on there just because I don't feel like the actual franchise is is that strong. It's the individual movies. See, and I had it number one simply for the importance it has had on the movie industry. Yeah, you know, The Godfather I mean, with, you know, two best pictures. things have influenced the movie industry in such a way. Well, yeah, Godfather has had that influence as well. You're right. Two best picture winners, you know. I mean, that's never going to happen again. Okay, so uh, let's recap. So, Todd, give me five to one. Uh... My number five is Austin Powers. Number four, James Bond. Number three, Toy Story. Number two, Rick's Before series. And number one is The Godfather with my uh, honorable mentions of Mad Max, Star Wars, and The Terminator. All right. For me, I've got a lot of honorable mentions. For me, number five is the Up series. Four is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Number three is the Before series. Number two is Harry Potter. Number one is Star Wars. My honorable mention, I've got James Bond. I've got the Dark Knight trilogy. 
Mission Impossible, X-Men, and simply for nostalgia's sake, Police Academy. Yeah, I thought about that too. I feel like I quote that more than almost any other franchise. <laughs> I know, right? It's because we watched those films constantly when we were kids. Uh. Okay, let's get to Adam's list. Todd, give me what you think his top five is. All right, I think his number one is Middle Earth. His number two is Marvel Cinematic Universe. His number three is Star Wars. Number four, Toy Story. And number five, Alien. All right, here's what I got. Number one, Star Wars. Number two, Dark Knight. Number three, MCU. Number four, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit. And number five, Animated Batman. <laughs> I take issue with the Dark Knight. That's not a franchise. That's that's part of that's part of the Batman franchise. Like, or else, uh, it's its own franchise. No, it's not. It has to be. You gotta consider it its own franchise, Todd. I don't. I don't agree with that. Okay. Well, let's see what Adam thought. So Adam sent me two different emails throughout the day. He sent me his list, and then he said, "Oh, I had to fix this. I had to send you another one." So here is his list. Updated rankings. Honorable mentions are Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Born, MCU, The Purge, uh, Scream, and Rocky. The Purge, huh? So Those are honorable mentions. MCU did not make it. That is shocking to me. Yeah, me too. I think his YouTube uh, followers are going to uh, unfollow him after that. That's assuming they also listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think they'll like our deep dive into the Screen Actors Guild Awards. <laughs> uh, Alright. So here's his top five. Number five, Toy Story. Number four, Star Wars. Number three, Harry Potter. Number two, Planet of the Apes. And number one, Lord of the Rings. So I got three. I got two. I'm shocked that... Which three did you have? I had Toy Story, Star Wars, and Middle Earth. I'm shocked he didn't have Alien even on his honorable mention. He probably forgot about it. He probably did. He's probably like, gonna, I forgot about Toy Story. He's probably going to tell me that on Tuesday. Honestly, I forgot about Godfather 2. He's probably going to tell me on Tuesday when he, when, he, when you upload this and he hears it. and He's, he's going to be like, dude, I totally forgot about Alien. That's the same thing he did with... Uh, they're, they're, Planet of the Apes! Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Planet of the Apes is definitely one of those. And, and, he, like, uh, and, uh, and Ghost World. Like, that was another one. He was, he's just like, oh, man. <laughs> He did that while we were still on the podcast. <laughs> this is his updated <laughs> right, list, he too. He probably would send you another one if he could do it right now. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention. It is movie franchises, and it doesn't qualify, but we could not pick Fargo. Well, technically, there are two seasons of Fargo now, and they're all... Like, you, this is true. They aren't movies. They could be movies. Well, don't they always run in, like, the Globes and the SAG as 
uh, limited series made for TV movies or made yeah. for TV movie instead of as a regular yeah. series. So there you go. There is a Fargo series. A Fargo franchise. It could have been on my list, actually. If I would have thought about that. <laughs> but we can't choose Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. All right. So I got to pick a power ranking well, list for next time. Yeah, you get to pick one. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Zach stayed away from this podcast simply... Because he didn't want to have to pick five franchises. Yeah, I don't even know what he would have picked. Yeah, let's try and predict Zach's list right now. <laughs> the Up series definitely was going to be on it. He'd probably uh, pull some uh, Ingmar Bergman like franchise out of a few of his movies, like the Van Sant Death Trilogy kind of thing. Like He probably would have pulled something out of his filmography. I would say Toy Story might be on his list. Possibly. He probably would throw something really random in there, though, like uh, like uh, Pitch Perfect or something, just to be weird. Well, Pitch Perfect 3 doesn't come out until next week. That, that, so He was going to put in a Christmas tale into his favorite Christmas movies. He hasn't even seen it. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Uh, what was the one I was going to say? Oh, he would probably try and find... Like a straight to VHS Speed 3. Oh. So he could put Speed on his list. Yeah. Or try to say that some film was based on Speed. So he could put it on his list. That's a that's a good call. That'd be like him putting Fargo on there. But he knows he yeah. can't do that going in, so. That's true. Hmm. He would try and put the Before series on his list. Even though he admits to having not seen them well didn't he only attempt to see the first one and fell asleep yeah he fell asleep in uh in our basement when i was showing him that yeah and that was a unfortunate day in zach Sauls history <laughs> see zach you can't miss any more podcasts we just talk crap about you the whole time yeah <laughs> there's nothing else to do yeah it's true all right, well, this podcast has gone on long enough. Without Zach here, we are going to skip over our Oscar trivia today and go straight to our quotes of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. Todd, why don't you start us off with your quote? Uh, my quote is coming from my number one franchise, The Godfather. And uh, Luca Brasi says, uh, Don Culeone, I'm honored and grateful you invited me to your home on your wedding day of your daughter. And may their first child be a masculine child. I always love that quote. <laughs> That's a great one. Alright, my quote is actually from the Harry Potter series. However, this quote very easily could have been in the Star Wars franchise as well. This quote, I believe, is from The Order of the Phoenix. And it's said by Sirius Black, played by Gary Oldman. And it is, We've all got both light and darkness inside us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. And it really sums up Harry Potter and Star Wars, really, in that quote. 
That is a good sum-up quote, for sure. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, Subscribe, rate, review on iTunes. This has been the Almost Sideways Podcast, and we will catch you later. The, The Scott Frost era has begun. So that was a disaster. Catch you on a Monday.